0: Talk to your local agent today.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Welcome back. Happy New Year. You had your Omicron. I hope it was brief and mild. If you're going to get it in the future, I hope that is also brief and mild. I hope you are healthy. We've got a lot of cool stuff planned for this year. We will tell you about some of that stuff later. For now, we have a newsy show with smart guests. We often do that. Uh, Today is no exception. Talking to Oliver Darcy, the CNN media reporter who specializes in the right-wing media ecosystem to talk about the way that ecosystem is covering January 6th and its anniversary, which is right now. We have Oliver on often because he's a great resource. He is the guy who sits and listens to Steve Bannon and Dan Bongino and gets on Parler and watches Fox News and tells us what's going on there because many of us who listen to this show probably don't spend time doing that. And then for the first time, from overdue, I'm having on one of my favorite reporters, Erin Griffith from the New York Times. who covers Silicon Valley for the Times. She spent the last few months covering the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial. We do spend some time talking about what the Holmes slash Theranos trial means, what it means for Silicon Valley. But really the reason I wanted to have Erin on is because covering this trial is a weird experience. It's equal parts glamour and tedium, and it involves getting up in the middle of the night over and over again to go from a hotel in San Jose and stand in line in front of a courthouse in San Jose, Um, and I wanted to sort of just show how the sausage gets made, because we don't actually often do that on this show, or many other shows, I think. Um, Journalism is not always glamorous, but it is often interesting, and this is a very interesting interview, if I do say so myself. Okay, enough of me talking, here is me talking to Oliver Darcy. I'm here with Oliver Darcy from CNN. Welcome, Oliver. Hey, Peter. Uh, thanks for joining me. Let's start with some things we know. We know water is wet. We know the earth is round. We know that on January 6, 2021, a mob of pro Trump rioters broke into the Capitol. Several people died as a result of the violence. We know all this because we saw it with our own eyes. Um, there's zero debate about it. Unless you consume a lot of conservative and right wing media, um, then you believe other things, apparently, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about what happened a year ago, what's happening today, the anniversary of the, of the January 6th riots. Um, you are a specialist in the right-wing media ecosystem. You've been on the show several times uh, to talk about that, um, so I wanted to bring you on. Um, Oliver, what, if you, if you consume Fox News or conservative talk radio or conservative podcasts, What is there a consensus view of what happened on January 6th of last year?
2: I think it, 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 there, there, really isn't a consensus view. I think, I think there are many different views, but they're all aimed with one goal, which is to sanitize and whitewash um, what happened. And so, you have some people who might believe theories, you know, that Antifa was actually responsible and they were the real agitators and Trump supporters would never do this sort of thing. And th- those theories were planted on very early.
1: The, the, I remember watching Fox News coverage on that on the reverse state. They were floating Antifa. Theories. Right.
2: Right. And, and people like Laura Ingram right away were saying, you know, that they were getting re- reports that uh, the agitators from left wing groups were there and, and the gateway pundits and other outlets uh, stoked those flames even more in more pronounced ways. Uh, so that's certainly a one train of thought, I think. That's it happened,
1: there. but it wasn't us.
2: Right, right, and then you have like people like Sean Hannity, who are, you know, I condemn that that violence, but I also condemn the the BLM violence, and the media is not condemning the BLM violence. They're hypocrites, and uh, and he just wants to sort of move on, right? They they just don't want to talk about it, and so that's another, uh, I think, way that January 6 is being covered or not covered uh, in conservative press. And then you have people like Tucker Carlson, who have just gone full in full wars, too, right? where they believe that the government was actually uh, potentially orchestrating this, uh, this uh, attack on the Capitol, and, and they're really the culprits. Uh, so I, and, and, and then in some cases, you, I think you have it where people just fuse all these ideas together. So they consume Sean, and they listen to Tucker, and listen to Ingram, and others, and, and they kind of have a fusion of different uh, thoughts in their head.
1: And you said something important there with coverage or, or lack of coverage. And so in yeah. some cases, people believe that something happened, um, but have an alternate explanation as to what it was or why it happened. And then in a, and in a lot of cases, it's simply sort of being memory hold, um, especially as the anniversary is coming up. Mm-hmm. Although it seems like we're, we're recording this on the 5th, on the 6th, there's going to be all kinds of coverage and Donald Trump is going to have a press conference. It seems like it will be impossible to have forgotten it, at least on January 6th of 2022.
2: Well, he canceled his press conference. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for the update. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I think there's this uh, new thing that's going on that I've been seeing this week is actually the media is obsessed with January 6th. Like they just they want to talk about January 6th. I just saw Glenn Beck. He's going to be interviewing Trump, actually, I think tonight. And he was saying it's just a distraction from Biden's bad year that the Dems want to talk about January 6th. Uh, and, and, and so that's a, a, a thing you're seeing as well, where. The right is dunking on journalists for being interested in a, you know, terror attack that happened at the heart of our democracy a year ago.
1: So there's a couple of things that get fused when we talk about right wing media and what happened in the last year and in and, and conservative and Republican politics and what's happened in the last year. And they're obviously linked. One is um, an increasing certainty that, that Republicans seem to believe in the majority that the election was stolen. Um, and that is now a mainstream Republican view, correct?
2: Yeah, I would say so.
1: And that and there's no mystery where that came from. That came from months and months of coverage from places like Fox, and that led up to January 6th. And then, right. and then on top of that, January 6th either happened, um, but it was in some... I think initially also that I was watching Fox on January 6th last year, um, that it was just defi- it was It was bad, but you could understand why people would be so upset because um the election had been stolen or they'd been led to believe that they would do sort of a little a little dance around it um are there are there people who believe one thing but not the other or do all those things go together
2: i think they all they'll go together and i think what you just said was is so important because on the night of january 6th you'll remember that tucker carlson he went on his show and he told his audience this is not your fault this is the th- fault of your leaders and that obviously when people lose confidence in the electoral process things like this happen. Of course, he's omitting, like you also pointed out, that it was Fox and others in right-wing media, as well as the former president, who had cast out on the election for the weeks and months leading up to January 6th. They had, you know, uh, Trump famously has always said that the system is rigged and, and, and whatnot. And then you have the election that happens, and people like Sean Hannity were stoking the big lie. People like, um, Laura Ingram. I mean, everyone in right wing media was basically stoking the big lie. Tucker Carlson famously came out against some of the more outlandish theories by like Sidney Powell, but he was also talking about election fraud, and and it all goes together. It all fueled the same lie that the election was stolen from Trump, and he, uh, you know, it was it was a result of fraud that he that Joe Biden won. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's an important factor as well that not only did these Um, people have they, uh, memory hold what happened on January 6th, but we're also forgetting that they played a key role in fueling the fire that led up to it.
1: There is a January 6th commission in Congress, mostly Democrats, with a couple of Republicans, notably Liz Cheney. Um, it is meant to both explain what happened and also to obviously sort of, um, advance different political agendas. Um... But that would only work if people are watching it and tuning it in. If if you if you consume conservative media, are you getting any of the January sixth uh, informa- commission information?
2: Not, I'm not really, not in a serious way. I think, um, you know, last night Sean Hannity, um, he was asked to voluntarily participate in the investigation, and he didn't trust it at all on his program. Um, but in the past, when Cheney had released some of the text messages from fox hosts uh they you know after 24 hours they came up with the response which was just to attack you know say this is a witch hunt this is explain what the
1: text messages were if you're not following this stuff closely this surfaced uh in december i believe
2: sure there were there were text messages from people like sean hannity and laura ingram and brian kilmeade uh to the chief of staff former chief of staff mark meadows uh basically expressing worry, saying that, that the Trump needed to do something, He needs to get out in front of television and tell people to go home. On is, on
1: that day, please on, tell on the t- day. Donald During Trump the insurrection. to stop doing this, yes.
2: Right. During the insurrection, Fox hosts are desperately trying to reach the uh, chief of staff to Trump and tell him to stop, stop what they're seeing, stop the insurrection, go out in front of cameras, say something. And they're telling Mark Meadows, this is embarrassing, you know, destroying the conservative cause, embarrassing all of them. And, uh, and and that obviously um, was much different than the coverage that these people were offering to their viewers. so which was this was
1: nothing to worry about or it's not you right. or you it's justified and right. Laura Ingram is saying say
2: to this. Meadows basically to get Trump to do something. and then when she goes on her show later that night, she immediately suggests that Antifa or left wing agitators perhaps played a role and and, and uh, already starts to sanitize what we saw. and I think, also important to note Peter on the night of January 6th, the hosts all did you know whether they were trying to uh, relieve Trump supporters one way or another and and, and give them some uh, some leeway they all did condemn the violence on January sixth uh, but over time I think the willingness to condemn the violence and 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 uh, what happened has has softened quite a bit and now it's basically um, them saying we condemn the violence and now the media is obsessed with this and they won't let it go as if uh the attack should just be forgotten
1: the 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 text messages i mean it's it's a great news item because it just underscores the duplicitousness of what's happening at fox where they're saying one thing privately and another thing publicly um on the other hand the idea that 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 Fox News personalities, um, have direct access or nearly direct access to Donald Trump was well documented throughout his, 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 uh, time in office by you and many others. Is there anything else we learn from those messages?
2: I think they're just
1: so damning because we haven't had private
2: communications in black and white that have been offered to the public showing very explicitly that Sean Hannity is extremely worried about Trump and the, uh, Plans for January six. You know, mm-hmm. we have now text messages where he's telling people that he's worried about what's going to happen. That he can't get through to the former president, saying the president needs to stop talking about the election. And then we now we obviously know because he went on television and he was a cheerleader for Trump. And so uh, the discrepancy there is just so jarring to see. And it's uh, because it's a text message, it's in black and white. I think it, it presents it in a way that maybe hasn't been presented before. I mean, I think we could have all. Obviously concluded this is probably something that was going on Mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes. But now we have evidence of it. We can see uh, what was really happening.
1: One person's name I hear a lot in the last year and especially the last six months that that I, you know, striking to me um, because we'd stopped hearing from him directly for a while. Steve Bannon, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Trump advisor, worked on the campaign, um, took some credit for the election, um, was his chief of staff. Correct. That was his title at the White House. I think he was like, what was it, political something? Yeah, he was not Chief of State. He he, yeah, he had an office at the White House, something. was yeah. holding forth and then got booted out uh, by Trump himself. They had a falling out and then was deplatformed um, a few years later, um, taken off Twitter and YouTube, et cetera. But I keep hearing about him talking and his messaging. Where is he messaging and, and how are people listening or consuming his news?
2: Yeah, he has this podcast, uh, War Room, and it's... Become quite an influential podcast, I'd say, in in, in right wing media circles, because he's hosting people like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and others who are influencers in this space. And he has um, now a platform where he's been advancing all sorts of wackiness um, about. Is January this on 6. the major?
1: Uh, is, this, is this distributed on the major podcast platforms? Spotify, Apple. Uh,
2: I I. I don't want to say anything here, as i all, all, i don't want to misremember. But I—I I, I think it—it it was at one point. I think he got deplatformed. Um
1: we will fact check after. the But but it is it is easily accessible if you it, want to consume this stuff.
2: It is easily accessible. I, I think he's definitely been booted from platforms like YouTube. I'm not sure about Spotify and others. But So is this
1: like the Sunday talk shows where it doesn't have compel a, a, a huge audience, but it gets influencers and people who care about this stuff and and become sort of the locus for where these messages are are disseminated?
2: I think it's somewhat similar to Breitbart when he was when he was uh, head of Breitbart, where the the loyalists, the real the real MAGA diehards, are going to listen to to the podcast. So it might not have uh, influence uh, in mainstream circles, but because it does influence the diehards so much, we ended up talking about what's going on because he's an influencer in that in that space, and he has been one of the people leading the charge on these conspiracy theories about January 6th for the past several months. And I think it has resulted in others following his lead to some extent.
1: So he's he's newly influential. Although to be honest and fair, and I'd love to have some DC reporters talk about this frankly, he's always been talking to reporters his entire time, and mainstream reporters from the Times and Washington Post and everyone are are in constant contact with him, and he's happy to sort of feed them quotes and and perspective on on how the Trump camp sees things.
2: Yeah, and but the thing that's kind of strange about him too, I think, is that he says all these outlandish things, but I think privately. It's almost like he like occasionally he will say something, you know, like he did uh, with uh, the Russia investigation, you know, that that strikes a you know, it, it feels very real and like he's not BSing. Right. Uh, but then on if you listen to his podcast, it, it feels very much like he's playing to the crowd.
1: Yeah, no, the, pod, the podcast, him speaking to the crowd, that's that's a. Steve Bannon theatrical voice, and then when he's speaking anonymously to reporters, I think very often you can still understand that it's him because he does have a a certain gift for language. Um, It's sort of like fake militaristic, like Call of Duty players. Um, But there he's speaking anonymously, and it's more tempered and oftentimes critical of Trump. Um, Speaking of deplatforming, a year ago, there was a lot of discussion about um, a a boomlet of right-wing media alternatives to twitter and youtube places like getter and parlor yeah. um and there was an initial rush of stories about how these things were, were finally getting conservatives to listen to them i've always been skeptical of that because it seems like it's very hard to launch a, a an actual social media platform without real resources and it's not an original thought but it's it's not fun to troll the libs if the libs aren't consuming what you're doing um how are these platforms doing are they are are people using them? Or, uh, Joe Rogan just initi- I, I think just told people mm-hmm. to go follow him on Getter,
2: right? And then he apparently had eight million followers in twenty four hours, mm-hmm. um, which uh, someone pointed out that that ex- you were expecting us to believe that this platform has being used by eight million people. You know, which is eh, I would say hard to believe. Um, I'm not I'm not really sure. I, I I think that there is definitely more of an appetite these days uh, for these platforms uh, among con- conservatives. Right. But I'm not really sure there's been a breakout success.
1: Are you dipping into it when you want to understand what people in the right wing uh, uh, media eco- ecosystem are saying? Or are you sticking with podcasts and talk radio and, and widely distributed web stuff?
2: I think you have to dip into it at this point, because when people like you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene are deplatformed, uh, if you want to keep up with, I guess, her latest statements, you know, she's on Telegram. And you can go and, and check that out. But I, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm a strange person. I'm, a, you know, not the average user. I'm not really sure how many people are on Telegram, right? And and and, and checking in with Marjorie Taylor Greene or like Lynn Wood. I think it's still obvious that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have a much bigger reach, YouTube, um, than these these smaller platforms. Uh, it, I, and, it, and it remains to be seen um, how much, uh, you know, how, how successful a platform like Getter will be, you know, or, 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 you know, Gab has been around for a while, but it really hasn't seen that mainstream success. And they've been basically begging people, conservatives, free speech advocates uh, to head over to their platform. But it's still not, you know, anywhere comparable to um, Facebook, and, and so I, I think it's still damaging to these conservative voices when they get booted from these platforms.
1: Speaking of nascent media organizations, what is the status of, of Tr- the Trump Media uh, Social Network slash SPAC?
2: I think we're all. I mean, it seems like I, I'm very skeptical of this uh, because, like you said, it's very difficult to launch a uh, just a social media platform. But they're you know theoretically trying to launch this multi platform entertainment company. Um, There's still no product, right? Uh, The slides seem like they have been um, copy and pasted from from other places on the internet. Very clearly, yeah, the investor slides, uh, if you
1: haven't checked them out, are great because they're clearly taken from something else and no one's bothered to look at it. I mean, it has definitely been successful at raising money, presumably from retail investors and other people who want to arbitrage a retail investor's interest in giving Donald Trump money. Sure. And it might even be legal. Um, whether or it's not there's ever a product is a, is right. yes. Whether or not there's a, a product is. A, I mean, do you imagine that that Donald Trump will actually put something out there this year? Or if you had to bet, do you think this is a, a real thing or it's permanent vaporware? I feel like
2: they'll put something out there. I mean, they kind of have to, but I feel like it's not going to be very good. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's it. it it's difficult to launch a social media platform. It seems simple, but I think people like Dan Bongino, who have been really trying to launch a social platform, have run into some significant problems. Um,
1: Dan and Bongino I'm, is a radio host. Was right. on Facebook. Has also been deplatformed. Was one of the the high performing. Um, is he, has he been deplatformed? I don't from think Facebook he's been deplatformed. He's, no. he's, he's been. I'm he's sorry. I always confuse my 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 platformers. Has <laughs> consistently one of the um, most popular, uh, most most highly shared voices on Facebook.
2: Right. And I think he's actually an interesting person though, because he's trying to build an alternate right wing ecosystem. So he has parlor, he's an investor in Rumble, um, and he is, Which is urging a people to get off of, yeah to get off of these mainstream uh, social media sites and, and to join their you know conservative versions of them, the alternatives. and they promise we will never censor, We will never um, you know deplatform others for, for their views. Um, but and he's he's been very devoted to this to this cause, and it's still you know it's very difficult to get people to to join these platforms. Um, Rumble is an interesting case. I think maybe if you had a pick of all the platforms which has been the most successful, maybe you could argue Rumble has really um, started to get some conservatives to exclusively post on there and to share content on there. But it's still nowhere near YouTube, right? Uh, so. It it remains to be seen. So whether, I guess, whether Trump launches something, he might launch something. But, you know, this is still someone from who couldn't barely run a blog. And and he's now theoretically going to have a platform. I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah. Bringing it back to January 6th, and we sort of sketched out the the ecosystem that exists there. If you're if you're consuming this stuff today, are you going to hear a lot about the, the the 2021 riots or will that be sort of wiped from your programming for today?
2: If you're consuming just conservative media, Peter,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I don't think you're going to be hearing a lot about it in a serious way. I think the only times you're going to be hearing about it, if you're listening to uh, the Sean Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, is to mock Democrats for for caring about it and uh, to hear conspiracy theories about, you know, that the the government was maybe behind it and that we're not getting the real truth uh, of what happened on January 6th. Um, you might hear some we... I'll condemn all violence, but the media won't condemn the Black Lives Matter protests, things like that for maybe more mainstream commentators. Uh, but you're not going to hear, you're not going to see what you're going to see in, in mainstream publications.
1: Uh, Oliver, I'm always glad when you come on and I'm always bummed um, by the end of our conversation. It makes me feel very bad about the state of the world, but I'm glad you're looking at it with, with your eyes open. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Oliver. In a minute, we're going to hear from Aaron Griffith. But first, a word from a sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Readers of the New York Times know my guest Erin Griffith as the excellent Silicon Valley-based reporter. Does awesome work. She describes herself differently. She has recently described herself in the New York Times as a nocturnal, sidewalk-dwelling, human-shaped snack bar. And that's why I wanted to talk to her today. Welcome, Erin.
3: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
1: The reason Erin described herself that way is she described herself that way as a result of covering the Elizabeth Holmes-slash-Theranos trial for how many months?
3: Uh, four. Four. Started jury selection started in August.
1: Um, this is the second trial, big deal trial you covered this year. Yeah. Covering Silicon Valley. <laughs> it's
3: true, uh, I covered Apple versus Epic uh, in the spring, but that was only three weeks, and the press access was limited. So we had a pool. So it was a, and, then, and there was also a hotline, so you could listen remotely. It was a much smaller lift. <laughs>
1: I used to see you around New York at events and, and doing tech fun things. Sometimes cocktails were involved. You moved out to California to be closer to the action. And then you spend all your time sitting on sidewalks waiting to get into the courthouses. That's not how it was supposed to work.
3: Yeah. You know, actually, I remember, weren't we at this like crazy Hamptons party once where mm-hmm. uh, at maybe like Alan Patrickoff's house where they were serving yes. these giant lobster... Yes. Uh, tales. And we were like, what are we doing here? Uh,
1: yeah, I no longer get invited to this. <laughs> yeah,
3: this is this was the the exact opposite of that. <laughs> covering trials so, is I, not glamorous.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I I mean. You have been covering this trial nonstop. People have been asking about the trial itself. Well, I'll ask you a little bit about it. But I really want to know what it's like to cover I don't know if it's the trial of the century, but it's the trial of the year. It's the most high-profile legal event in Silicon Valley in a long, long time. Uh, you wrote about this for the Times. I, I just wanted to get a sense of what it's like to do it, starting with the fact that you spent, I think, many, many nights not at your house but in a hotel in San Jose.
3: Yeah. So glamorous downtown San Jose uh, (laughs) spent more time than I care to even think about sitting on the sidewalk outside of the courthouse. Um, There's only 34 seats in this courtroom, and obviously there's a lot of competition to get in there. And so there was this kind of arms race of getting there earlier and earlier, especially once Holmes started testifying. And so people are showing up at one in the morning to get in line for this for this courtroom. I I was generally getting there between like three and four and maybe.
1: <laughs> so you had to stay in San Jose where you don't live, you live in San Francisco. It's a <laughs> yeah. couple hours north. Yeah. And so you would get up at what time to go stand in line to get a seat?
3: I mean, one, basically for the last month of the trial, once Holmes started testifying in late November and so for that last month I was yeah basically staying in a hotel a block away from the courthouse and uh you know getting up setting my alarm for three and like checking it, checking my group texts with a few of the other reporters who, some of whom got there even earlier to see how many people were online and try to gauge like if I can get 10 more minutes of sleep or if I need to like bolt out of bed and sprint down there right now so I can get in under number 34. Um, there was a day when I, I don't remember which day or which time it was it all kind of blurs together now. Um, but there was a day when I had to, I was relegated to the overflow room that happened to be the day that Tyler Schultz was there. So I got, little excitement in the overflow room.
1: George (laughs) Shelton's son, one of the chief whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. Um, Grandson. Yeah. Dumb question, two dumb questions, but one, there's no reserve press seating, not even for the New York times.
3: It was first come first serve. Um, The judge uh, kind of made it that way on purpose, probably because the court didn't want to deal with having to credential people, um, and they were very hands off about it. There were definitely times when there were emails to the court complaining about line cutters or various other dramas of trying to get into the courtroom, and they were like, "Sorry, you guys need to work this out amongst yourselves." And,
1: and did anyone ever try to pack the court to keep the press out? Did Did Holmes boosters ever try to make sure that the room was was only uh, uh filled with people who liked her?
3: Well, she had or some, some other
1: variations of that. Yeah,
3: she had. There were some shenanigans. She had um. a a sort of rotating cast of friends and family who were always in her... She had a specific reserved row um, for them, and they would... Uh, but they still had to get tickets like everybody else and so they were hiring task rabbits to wait in line you know paying them like 50 60 bucks an hour to get there early and get the ticket for them and and mm-hmm. well, the interesting thing that i realized is that the task rabbits are, they're motivated to get there as early as possible because they get paid more <laughs> because they're there for more hours so they're getting there at 1 a.m. uh yeah <laughs>
1: And that was my other dumb question. You work for the New York Times. They have some resources. Couldn't you pay for your own Task Rabbit to stand in line for a few hours?
3: Yeah, we thought about that. But there was just, I mean, after being sort of uh, in the trenches with the rest of the press corps for this long, I think we all kind of realized it was not in the best, uh, I don't know, it it, it it didn't quite seem right. So so we decided not to do that. I, I covered this alongside. We,
1: we, we being you you and the other reporters standing in line collectively decided not to do that? Well, or you and your your colleagues? Yeah, time,
3: me and so my colleague, uh, so. Aaron Wu, um, our reporting fellow who has been covering this with me, um, we just kind of realized we we need to wait in line ourselves. Uh, it's uh, just sort of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the best way to describe that. But
1: <laughs> it would be a bad look, I think is what we say.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, we're all kind of in this together. The The, the thing that makes it tough though is like so you're getting there at three in the morning you're waiting you know six hours essentially before you actually get into the courtroom and then your workday starts. <laughs> then mm-hmm. you actually have to start, you know, typing and taking notes and processing what's happening and reporting back. And you know, usually by two or three in the afternoon, the the days ended at four was when I would start kind of like dragging a little bit and realizing like how tired I was and just like our print deadline's coming and I'm trying to like sort of process what's going on and almost like consistently around that time was when something crazy would happen in the court for the day and we'd have to tear up our story and like you know sort of redo it in time for a deadline and so that was another added challenge <laughs> that's something
1: i think people generally don't because they that most people only see courtrooms on television and the movies but generally not a lot of exciting stuff happens
3: it's so much procedural it's, it's stuff like I, before the start of court every day the lawyers would be fighting over you know which exhibits could be talked about in which way and they they're not They're not turning around and explaining it to the press like, oh, by the way, this is the thing we're mentioning. Like, we're all sitting there whispering amongst ourselves, like, is this the thing? And trying to actually glean (laughs) what's going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and yeah, there's just a lot of technical procedural stuff that goes into it that you don't you don't see on A Few Good Men. (laughs)
1: More dumb questions for you. Um, some trials are televised. This one is not. If there was a video feed, or if this was streaming on CNN, would you guys have spent the time and effort to to go in person anyway?
3: I don't know. Probably, probably not. Because I, I, I mean, I think we would have still wanted to be there for the main things. Because first of all, you know, the U.S. government's technical capabilities—you um, you, you ne- don't can't necessarily trust that the feed's always going to be working, and so you don't want to leave that up to chance. Um, but I remember
1: there was some hijinks and issues with the uh, the Epic trial where like a bunch of either pro or, or anti-Apple kids came on and started cursing onto the uh, Yeah, they the had line. this
3: hotline, but they, it was open so people could scream into <laughs> it. Yeah, there's I and mean, there's a lot of technical issues with this trial even because there was an overflow room and sometimes the feed would cut out and people would miss things. And there was one day when court was delayed for two hours because they couldn't get the exhibits to show up on the displays and they had to like bring out lamps and and like an old-fashioned projector. and. And so we probably still would have sent people or we probably still would have wanted to be down there, particularly on on the big days. And one of the challenges with this trial, unlike Apple and Epic, was that we had no heads up as to who was testifying or what was coming next. Every time they called someone new to the stand, it was a total surprise. And so it's just kind of a crapshoot. You almost have to be there just to see what's going to happen next. Like, I mean, including when Holmes testified, really no one was expecting that to come next. Uh, It was Three o'clock on a Friday after a long, grueling five day week. And everyone was kind of like, I had filed my story. One other reporter was like booking her flight to leave early. And then they call her and we all just kind of go into panic mode. (laughs) So that's been a theme of this uh, covering covering this.
1: Um, I want to talk a little bit about what, what it's like inside the courtroom. I follow you on Twitter. There was a, <laughs> a, a drama at one point about the fact that you and other folks were typing too loud. <laughs> who told you we were typing oh, too loud? This and what's was, the appropriate level of volume in a, in a courtroom? This
3: happened at least four times, probably more. Um, the judge got complaints from a juror who said that the keyboard clacking was distracting them. And this is partly because the jur the jury is spread out. Some of them are sitting actually in the gallery because of COVID. Um, they like kind of space them out, and so some of them are sitting, you know, directly in front of us. And anytime something exciting happens, obviously we're all typing as fast as we can to try to get it all down. And uh, I guess that sound was too loud. And there's some kind of rule about you need to have a silent keyboard, which isn't really a thing that I'm aware of. Um, <laughs> I bought a, I bought one of those like plastic keyboard covers that it didn't really muffle the sound that much, but it did force... Oh,
1: you bought a muffler? Yeah,
3: I tried. I mean, I w- no one wants to be the one who is the loud typer who gets all the keyboards kicked out of the courtroom. I mean, <laughs> that would be really devastating to the coverage of this trial. So yeah, we were all kind of trying to police each other and, uh, you know, trying to like limit our typing it's it's like when you get caught up in the moment it's kind of hard though
1: (laughs) and then mechanically so you can bring your computer in presumably it's connected to the internet so Mm -hmm. presumably you can message your editors etc um but various courtrooms have restrictions about technology or phones um, I'm assuming that you're both covering the trial, talking to people outside of the courtroom, maybe working on other stories at the same time, or or can you really just only take notes and, and that's kind of it? No,
3: no, yeah, I mean that's kind of this, the, the sense of actually covering it to me was like I've never multitasked more in my life because you're trying to write down what's happening, you're trying to take in any sort of physical things that you're seeing that are happening with your eyes, you're messaging your editor about like what you're hearing or what's going on, your email emailing outside sources, trying to, you know, see if they have any thoughts to to kind of round out and provide context to what your story is going to say. And then also, you know, tweeting. (laughs) And uh, so it's just kind of this like, and and actually writing your story. (laughs) So it's this kind of crazy multitask thing. And um, yeah, that was, that was kind of, that was a new experience for me. But then on the, on the flip side, like I said, there's a lot of procedural stuff that Kind of can be like your eyes glaze over and it's hard to follow and you know you find yourself kind of checking your email and being distracted and then you get snapped back into it realizing oh they just said something important um, yeah that's where buying the transcripts is uh, comes in handy.
1: <laughs> um, John Cariou, mm-hmm. uh Wall Street Journal reporter, who did the lion's share of the work exposing the Theranos fraud. Um at one point there was a discussion that he might have been called as a witness for the defense right, on, on yeah. Holmes defense. What was the logic there and, and did it ever happen?
3: No, so he was never called. I mean, in this case in general, there was more than two hundred a list of more than two hundred potential witnesses and in the end we only had, I think, thirty-one. So it Lots of big names that everyone was expecting to hear from did not get called. Um, Kerry Rue was one. He was listed. And the thing about being on this list is you can't be in the courtroom for other testimony. Um, And so he, as a reporter, was not allowed to be in the courtroom hearing the actual proceedings. And so he had lawyers that fought that. And he eventually did win access um, to the courtroom. It was kind of, they, you know, used some technical wrangling in order to to make that mm-hmm. happen and 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 in the end he was he was never called
1: but what was the logic what was your understanding of the logic of having a reporter who'd uncovered a fraud testify on your behalf
3: you, on behalf of the defense
1: right because that he was going to be just, the defense was going to call him
3: well right? i mean i think that's that you can kind of read into that and say that they'd purposely put him on that list as a you know, way to keep him out of the courtroom to
1: ice him out. Yeah. But yeah. they
3: could have also I mean, they could have been trying to intimidate him. Um, they could have been, you know, planning to grill him and and expose some kind of, you know, unethical thing that they might have been claiming that he did in his reporting process. I, I mean, who who knows? But um, yeah, that was that was an interesting choice by them. Am
1: I imagining this or did other reporters who wrote about Holmes end up on the stand? Uh,
3: Roger Parloff, um, who wrote the first cover story on Elizabeth Holmes for Fortune Mm -hmm. magazine, was the last witness to testify. And the defense also had some really aggressive legal wrangling with him. They were trying to uh, subpoena him to give up all of his reporting notes um, as evidence. He had already turned over his recordings of his interviews with Holmes um, voluntarily, and they were trying to get him to give up all of it. And the, the magistrate judge who oversaw that hearing basically said, no, you're going on a fishing expedition. You're just trying to dig up any kind of dirt that might, you know, incriminate him um, or his reporting. And so they, they didn't get very far with that.
1: Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I don't c- cover the courts for a living, but I don't remember ever hearing about reporters who covered the subject being brought in to the trial Again, on the to, on be on behalf of the defense, I, I'm assuming the main idea is to sort of make the reporters look bad and mm-hmm. like they had an agenda and somehow yeah,
3: and so Parlov
1: into the the, the, the charges. yeah
3: exactly and and Parlov was a, a test uh, was a witness for the prosecution and ah. the the point of that was that she used that article um, as. A way to solicit investment. She sent it around. It co- she knew that it contained incorrect information about what their analysis tests could do, and she sent it around to investors as she was raising money from them, saying, "Read this article, blah blah blah." And like, so it was it was kind of a key piece of evidence, the article itself. And then we you know heard tape of her. Making these mis- misrepresentations to Parloff and saw lots of evidence of her then sharing the misrepresentations. So, like that was a pretty clear piece of evidence that I think worked pretty well for the um, for the prosecution.
1: So I think it was Monday of this week that you start tweeting that they were going to hear a verdict or, or or we're close to hearing a verdict or the jury's been called back. Um, walk me through what happens as you get those. Met- Are you called back to the courtroom or you're already in the courtroom? You're already there. So,
3: yeah, this was day seven of deliberations. And we had been sitting around for seven days and uh, between Christmas and New Year or starting just ahead of Christmas. And then in between.
1: That's how you spent your Christmas break is, is yeah. going to the San Jose Hotel and then hanging out in the courtroom. For the <laughs> day. It was, yeah,
3: yeah, it was. um it was fantastic. Um, so they uh, I really thought the jury would want to be done before the holidays. They went they started deliberating just before Christmas, but they were very, very meticulous. And they, you know, they did a good job. Um, so anyway, they yeah, we were sitting around. Um, we got basically a 30 minute heads up anytime the jury would have a note. Um, and so we would all you know, pile into the courtroom and listen to it being read. But they only had two notes, and the last one was on December 23rd. And so for that whole week between Christmas and New Year's, we were just going down to San Jose, sitting there. Nothing would happen, and then we'd get a note that said, the jury has left for the day. I'm like, okay, great. You get to go. Yeah, and it was kind of like you, you'd you think that I would use that time to be productive on other things, but it was it was kind of hard because you have to be ready – at a 30-minute notice to kind of, like, jump into the most stressful, critical part mm-hmm. of this entire trial at any time. And so <laughs> it's kind of just this, yeah, we're all kind of tweaking our pre-writes for the verdict, you know, writing one version guilty, one version not guilty. Anyway, so on Monday, she... Uh, we we got a note from uh, the jury. They said that they were at an impasse on three of the counts, which kind of implied that they had made a decision on the other eight. um, And the judge gave them the Allen charge, which is uh, essentially telling them, "Okay, go back and keep trying. Um, And so they went back and and deliberated for four more hours. And then, you know, as the day is winding down, we get another note and the note says we uh, we still can't decide on these three. We're stuck. And um, the judge basically says, "Okay, fine, we're just going to take the counts that you have will will allow you to be hung on the three, and you know I guess within the hour they came back with a verdict form filled out
1: and so like you said, I think if you don't do journalism, this would be a foreign identity, but you've you've written to at least two versions of the story guilty and not yeah guilty. I, I think so I, did, I think it did
3: three i did uh I think I might have done one for them being hung on all the charges too,
1: so you can so the idea is. You've got the bulk of this thing written. You just <laughs> drop in what actually happened. How much of the pre-written story ends up in the New York Times the next day?
3: I mean, most of it. I mean, all the context, yeah. like all the background, mm-hmm. all the stuff that you know, all the main questions that people have on, like, what are the charges? Uh, what was the? What were the highlights of the trial? All that stuff you can kind of do in advance, and then you leave a space for, okay, what is the actual decision, and then what happened inside. The courtroom at the moment, uh, which was a little anticlimactic in this case. Um, and what, uh, you know, any statements that were made, any extra things that happened or context, anything that comes from the jurors, and then you kind of keep adding to it and adding to it. I think we probably did two or three versions. We just got the first thing up that says what what the charges are and what happened. And then, and then we keep updating it with more stuff as it comes in.
1: And for someone... You're someone like me who uses Twitter a lot and probably has conflicted feelings about it. Did you have <laughs> yes. to restrain yourself from tweeting while you were actually filing or were you doing both things at the same time? You know,
3: I, I I actually had a conversation with my editor and Aaron Wu about this. And, you know, our first priority is getting it up on the website that pays us, which is NewYorkTimes.com. And so, you know, we're communicating that first. We're checking to make sure what's being published is correct. We spun up a live blog um, on the Times site and so by the time we got everything up and completed that's when i went to twitter and because i wanted my first tweet Mm -hmm. about it to include the link to our live blog so people know where to go and that's what's being updated so i I, my tweets were kind of all over the place when it was happening i basically just kind of would shoot one out after in between while i was waiting for edits back from um you know (laughs) my editor's uh that was maybe not um yeah, my, my main priority. But we had
1: I, I read you on I read you on multiple platforms. Yeah. So we had we uh, had rolling updates on our
3: on our live blog. That was the main thing. And then the second priority was, you know, getting our story up. Obviously it was way past our, our East Coast print deadline since it happened so late in the day. Um so getting those edit those um those edits in were, were important. <laughs>
1: Does that mean there are versions of the New York Times that went out the following day that didn't have uh, the full story or any any version of the story?
3: No, no, they had the uh, no. they had the the full main story. I mean, I think in general we want to get stuff in uh, <laughs> by a deadline, mm-hmm. but we're obviously able to hold things. You could accept uh, it, yeah. That, that break late. Um, so yeah, it was on the front page. So
1: if you were listening to this podcast, you know what the result of the trial is. I wanted to ask you one more thing about a, a piece you wrote a day or so after the trial, which was about Silicon Valley's ongoing attempt to distance itself yeah, from this very high-profile Silicon Valley startup that turned out to be a fraud. Um, and they do have, they've been making arguments for some time and you really don't take them that seriously. Can you Can you sum up what the arguments are and why you don't take them seriously? Well, but you think that she is a reflection of Silicon Valley and yeah, its be, culture?
3: To be clear, I, I do take it seriously and I'm and I listened to it and considered it, you know, because mm-hmm. I I've been hearing this for like five years, you know. <laughs> um the, at first they were <laughs> they were de- defending her. They're, you know, Mark Andreessen was blocking people who were be- tweeting critical things. There were a number of Fairly high profile VC, and he was not an
1: investor. He was just blocking yeah. her as, I mean, a, he as li- an advocate of of people who live in California who don't. Like
3: he he lived around the corner from her in Atherton. Um, he, he yeah, and there there were lots of people. There was a TechCrunch blog post by one VC that was defending her. You know that people reflexively pushed back because they want to protect their own, kind of circling the wagons. But you know I've, I've thought about this a lot because this has just been this recurring thing everyone in the media is saying this trial is a referendum on silicon valley culture this this has been a major theme and underlying kind of idea behind the coverage and there are certain vcs that just are extremely like angry about (laughs) about that they don't want to be connected to this and i understand on one hand because like you don't even in journalism you don't want to be represented by the worst actor in your field. Mm-hmm. But I I thought about all of the stuff that we learned throughout this trial and just kind of concluded that definitively, Theranos was, and Elizabeth Holmes was, a creature of Silicon Valley. She definitely took things too far. She committed criminal fraud. That's not the case with most people <laughs> in Silicon Valley. But, like, she was... Uh, yeah I, I guess let me let me think of a better way to say this.
1: I mean, I think the main argument that I've read is if yeah yes, she's in Silicon Valley and yes, she raised venture capital, but if you look at the people who backed her, it's none of the blue chip. Uh, Valley companies and none of the serious uh, biotech com- uh, investors backed her. That's why she had a board composed and board sure. and investors with people like Rupert Murdoch and re- retired generals and people who didn't have any domain experience. Those are the ones who were giving us money. The people in the Valley who knew better stayed clear.
3: Sure. And so, I mean, first of all, you can just look at the facts. Based in Silicon Valley, went to Stanford, recruited her board through the Hoover Institute. Like all, she had Don Lucas. Larry Ellison, Tim Draper, Dixon Dahl, um, one of the co-founders of IVP, she had Silicon Valley DNA right there next to her. And so for people to say, oh, well, everybody else in Silicon Valley passed. She's not a real Silicon Valley company because the real VCs passed. And that's just kind of not how this place works. If Theranos had been successful, they would be celebrating her. Mm-hmm. And so Silicon Valley investors did look at Theranos and some of them passed. A lot of them said she wasn't able to answer her questions, but that does not mean that she is not a creature of Silicon Valley. She used Silicon Valley culture. She embodied it and then she exported it to other investors who are dying to put their money into a hot unicorn. And that is sort of how the hype machine in Silicon Valley works. And that's how many companies are still doing it. They're raising money from VCs first, and then they're using that sort of hype to attract outside investors from mutual funds to hedge funds. Funds. I mean, the money that's pouring into these companies now is not just coming from Sequoia Capital. It's coming from companies or from from investors all around the world. And so I'm not really sure where you kind of draw that line. And yes, she crossed into criminal fraud, which many, many Silicon Valley companies do not do. But up until that point, she was very much a creature of Silicon Valley.
1: Aaron Griffith, um, I'm delighted to read your stuff. I'm delighted to read stuff that does not involve you standing in a courtroom <laughs> for hours on end. Um, go get some rest. Uh, you deserve it. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Aaron. Thanks again to Oliver. Thanks, as always, to Jelani, who produced and edited the show today. Thanks to our sponsors who let you listen to this show for free. And thanks to you guys for listening year after year. I'm lucky that I get to do this for a living. Uh, This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.